the lucky man. Hey, Nani, Nani, is it you? Hey, Nani, Nani. Are you, are you, are you, are you? Nani, no, ni, 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 no, no, no. Someone's being bashful. That's no way to be. Not with me. Can't you see that I am just as embarrassed as you? And I can understand your point of view. I've always been Welcome to Broadway Radios this week on Broadway for September 11th, 2022. My name is Matt Tamanini, sitting in for James Marino. And on the broadcast today, I am joined by Peter Felicia and Michael Portantier. Peter Felicia is a journalist, playwright, and historian with a number of books. His latest, The Book of Broadway Musical Debates, Disputes, and Disagreements, is now available and can be purchased wherever you find your finest books. Peter also has columns at Masterworks Broadway, Broadway Select, Encore Monthly, and many other places. Peter, welcome back stateside. You did a little bit of traveling here over the past week or so. Yes, indeed. I was in London, so uh, but it's so nice to be back home where I belong. <laughs> Very good. We'll, we'll talk plenty about your escapades in London uh, here later in the show. Uh, but before we do that, Michael Portantier is a theater reviewer and essayist and is the founder and editor of CastAlbumReviews.com. He is also a theatrical photographer whose photos have appeared in the New York Times and other major publications. You can see his photography work at FollowSpotPhoto.com. Michael, pull in double duty. You know, <laughs> normally we just ha- hear about you know, actors going back and forth between two shows in one day. You're rehearsing two shows right now, burning the candle at both ends. <laughs> kind of, yeah. That's not the title, though. <laughs> yeah. and, I, and I ain't as young as I used to be. It would have been, you know, 30, years ago, it, 30 years ago, it would have been one thing. But yeah, yeah, I'm uh, in the In the Wings production of Guys and Dolls uh, on Staten Island uh, at the St. George Theater playing Harry the Horse, as we've discussed. And that runs from the 22nd through the 25th. And then two days later, I'm directing and hosting Bernstein on Broadway at 54 Below. Um, So it's been doable because uh, the Guys and Dolls rehearsals are all in the evenings and the other rehearsals for the other show are almost entirely during the day. Uh, But it will be um, a little bit of a relief when (laughs) they're both over (laughs) get through is there any details about the bernstein content that you can give us either people performing or songs being included anything that you can whet the appetite for people who might want to come out to 54 well one thing i that i might be able to whet the appetite with uh, i can't do yet because it's not definite Ah. because we might have um a major star on hand Uh, but in the me but even if we don't honestly honestly i even if we don't i think it's going to be great we have a lot of people who are not necessarily uh boffo box office but they're really really amazing uh nikita burstein who was romeo Uh, in romeo and mm -hmm. bernadette Mm -hmm. and megan sterna and alex getlin and um uh albert neltrop this really talented young guy from wagner college and uh well i mean he was he he went to wagner he graduated a couple of years ago and uh it's it's gonna be a 
a really good show. I think that it's amazing uh, that Bernstein, uh, you know, I mean, he, he, he became a sensation when he made his debut as conductor of the New York Philharmonic on no notice uh, filling in for someone else, Dimitri Metropolis, I think. Uh, and then, so that happened and that was like almost basically front page news because in those days people cared more about things like that <laughs> um and then you know right after that uh not long after that he and Comden and green just really hit broadway in a big way with on the town and from there it was just uh, you know his career just skyrocketed as a conductor and a composer and a, a teacher many people knew him only as um the host of the young people's concerts on television, which apparently uh, we don't have anything like that now, sadly. No. Uh, but apparently that, that was an introduction to music for millions, <laughs> millions of people. You know, uh, it was a really amazing, wonderful thing that'll, as I say, probably never happen again at, at that level. Um, so he, you know, he's a, he's a fascinating person as an individual and as a talent uh and as i'm sure many people know uh there is soon to be a a, a movie about him uh mm -hmm. starring bradley yeah. cooper directed by and starring bradley cooper so yeah um i i think it's going to be quite something yeah well that's very exciting uh and we will well one wish you luck in all of the rehearsals and the show and then obviously we'll be looking forward to a full recap after the event later this month so all right well let's get into the discussions peter i feel like we need to start over uh in london and before we kind of get into the things that you've seen we should note that you were in london on the day that queen elizabeth ii passed away and you kind of noticed some things that were a little different than how you expected that would have rolled out especially when it comes to theater and their schedules well, granted, when uh, Kennedy was assassinated, it was a far more dramatic um, event sure. uh, because he was not even half the age of um, Queen Elizabeth. Uh, but that night, that Friday night, performances were canceled. Um, no shows went on at all. They did resume the following afternoon, but that Friday night, nothing. So I fully assumed when I was going to uh, Dr. Faustus at the... It's pronounced differently, but it looks like Southwark um, Playhouse. I can't get the pronunciation. I forget it already. But anyway, I fully <laughs> expected I was going to get my 20 pounds back. And um, I did get 20 pounds heavier there, but that's another story. Um, but but anyway, uh, I really fully expected they were going to turn me away, and they didn't. And I found out that uh, West End shows did go on that night. Michael tells me that, indeed, they did get canceled um, after a, a, a day or two, but um, I didn't know that. But I have to say that I was really, really surprised because um, I really found out about it. I would say about an hour before uh, showtime. I was actually at the playhouse. I was at the hotel next door um, sitting and reading when I saw on the TV screen, Queen Elizabeth has died. And I was very, very surprised. Um, I, well, I mean, it's always a shock, even though the, the news had been saying sure. that indeed she, uh, doctors were concerned about their health, Was her health was the uh, official line that was being used. But, you know, there's still a big difference between concerned about health and death. So, um, I mean, I really 
let out a, a real cry of surprise. And um, I, I, I was the only one sitting in the lobby, so um, nobody else um, was able to give that cry of surprise. But um, anyway, it was right next to the theater, so I really fully expected I was going to get my money back. Not at all. So, um, but uh, going to the airport the next day and seeing um, all the newspapers and seeing the um, the many many electronic screens simply had a tribute um, to the Queen in one way or another and um so it really was something to see that happening and um so you could really feel the palpable difference in the mood on the tube and all that kind of business people really were um because i mean i mean even i <laughs> this is the only queen that i ever um experienced um on the english throne i mean you know, 1952. I mean, sure. Yeah. You know, I mean, yeah, that's that's a long time. Needless. And no, no monarch has ever done more, as I recall. I mean, I remember growing up and hearing about Queen Victoria and how uh, my, you know, how long she ruled. And then, you know, it was a comparative drop in the bucket to what <laughs> Queen Elizabeth did. So so it really was something to be there at that historic time. And it's something I'll never forget. Yeah. Uh, was there any uh, acknowledgement from the stage before or after the show? Any kind of no, I will admit that I wasn't at a West End show where that may have happened. I, 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 that may sound strange. Why would it happen in one place and not the other? But um, this playhouse is more of a seats of, pa of pants operation. It's um, I would compare it to off off Broadway. So um, it, uh, the, the place just didn't have a sense of occasion. So maybe that had something to do with it. I don't know. But anyway, no, there was n it was uh, business as usual. And was that the only show you saw during your trip? By no means, but it was the only one I saw. Um, it was it was my last day there. Oh, okay. Yeah, I gotcha. So, um, yeah. so you know, if, if you're telling me that some shows were canceled, um, I'm, I was very lucky that it happened that way. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah. yeah, I'm looking through some of the announcements and especially things like the Royal Shakespeare Company, and I think even Les Mis and Hamilton had announced that they were canceling, which drew a little bit of a chuckle from social media that. Hamilton and Les Mis were yeah, sure. shut, shutting down for the, the death of a monarch, but um, that's neither yeah, here nor yeah. there. Um, <laughs> before we get into what you did see, Peter, I wonder, there have been so many shows um, and other pieces of, of media and pop culture about Queen Elizabeth and her family, um, everything from The Crown on Netflix to King Charles III to the audience. Um, is there anything that step you know stands out to either of you that really kind of uh, you think of as like the, the singular and, and best piece of either theater or film or television about the Queen and or her her family? No, um, Michael. Can you think of anything? I, I really can't. Well, there was well, the, 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 the Helen the, Mirren thing, right? Yeah, the, I was just the about audience. to say. Yeah. 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 What was that called? Was it simply called The Queen? It was The Audience, I believe. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think that was written or directed or written and directed by Peter Morgan, who went on to create The Crown on Netflix. So there's a lot of uh, uh, a lot of connections. Cross-pollination. Yes, right. absolutely. <laughs> well, let's let's turn your, our attention to a different kind of royalty. And this is uh, pop culture royalty, because, Peter, you saw a show that when it was first announced, I I almost assumed it was a joke or if it was going to be a fringe thing. But there is a legitimate show in the West End based off of the 1980s blockbuster hit Back to the Future that apparently is a lot of fun and will be landing in New York City sooner rather than later. So what did you think of the Back to the Future musical? 
You know, it's funny. Um, so many times through our lives, we we encountered people who would say, I hate musicals. I hate when they sing. And ironically enough, that has turned around in the sense that people now laugh when people sing. We have an audience now that um, enjoys seeing people sing in inappropriate places. What do I mean? OK, so you may recall that Marty McFly, the young man, has a girlfriend. And she really um, they're very devoted. It's a very nice relationship that they have, especially for teenagers. So anyway, she when she meets whom she thinks is Calvin Klein, because that's what's on his. Um, this is the mother. No, I'm sorry. The mother um, meets him later on in in the show uh, because he travels back to 1955 and the mother, the mother sings a song about how she's really taken with this this boy. So there she is singing a 1955 type of song, um, easygoing pop rock of rock and roll, as we used to call it then, of the era. And she's in her bedroom and suddenly the curtains in her bedroom part and four backup singers accompany her. And the audience gurgles with pleasure, you know, that um, this stupid thing has happened. Um, they really enjoy the fact that uh, we're really saying this is what happens in musicals. I mean, that's they, they'll do anything to um, have a, a song. You know, I, I this happened throughout the show. There's Roger Bart as the um, as uh, Doc Brown, uh, the, the mad scientist, so to speak. Not so mad um, and certainly genial. But there he is, Doc Brown. And he's singing the song and out of the blue, the entire ensemble comes on stage in top hat, uh, white tie and tails and accompanies him with the number. They have no business being there, but they do it. And the audience gurgles with pleasure again because musicals are so stupid. This is what happens. So um, so in a strange way, um, this show uh, insults musicals. You know, I blame this on um, Patient Zero to me is Burt Backrack. Because when Burt Bacharach did Promises, Promises, an excellent musical, don't misunderstand me, with an excellent score, um, he, he included backup singers in the pit. And that sort of was like the little um, <laughs> beginning of this type of thing happening, because there was no reason for backup singers to be uh, accompanying people on stage. Then. And, you know, maybe um, Little Chapo Horace is a little guilty of this, too, because we had the three um, backup singers singing and they weren't necessary, but they added flavor. But now it seems that Back to the Future is run with this and um, the audience really appreciates it. And of course, uh, there's there's a very interesting thing about the music in the show, because, yes, it's very successful in um, sounding like 80s music when it's in the 80s. And it's very successful in sounding like 50s music when it's in the 50s. Very good there. And um, but but um, (laughs) of course, you can imagine how I felt when the first uh, lines of of the first lyrics in the show uh, rhymed. And rhyme is in quotation marks, town with a round. So, I mean, immediately, you know, I'm, I'm having a tough time with it. Very clever use, though, of um, the wonderful song from um, Back to the Future movie, The Power of Love by Huey Lewis and the News. Because here, Marty is uh, actually auditioning with it to uh, be in the school show. And no sooner does he start it that the principal comes on and um, and says, you got to get to class and all that. You can't do this now. So um, so we're thinking, wow, that's all we're going to hear the power of love. Hardly. They're very smart. 
They know exactly what they have to do. At the end of the show, Marty uh, is on stage doing that number and everybody goes out very happy hearing that wonderful song. Um, so that's very clever. But what's also interesting is Johnny B. Good is used as well. That, of course, was used in the movie as well. And at the end of Johnny B. Good, which was a pop rock song at the time, so the, the, the kids in, the, in the, the school dance dance to it. They're having a good time dancing to it. Um, and then he goes into some very Jimi Hendrix-type guitar licks, and he gets on his knees, and he, he starts torturing the guitar with those weird sounds. And as in the movie, um, the kids stop and stare. What is he doing? doing what is this sound and he says um well i i I, something like i guess um you'll you're not ready for that yet your kids are gonna love it i think is what he says in the movie or something to that effect that's exactly my point he says your kids are gonna love it and the audience burst into applause and cheers (laughs) so again this is the type of music that is wanted today so as a result um everybody had a really good time uh i have to say one of the most subtle things I have seen in terms of a theatrical convention that most of us don't like. Uh, and that is when uh, actors on stage pretend to be so amused by what's going on that they start laughing. You know, the type of the phony breakups they're uh, yeah. officially yeah. called. I hate that. <laughs> well, I'll tell you. Yes, I hate it too. However, it was really interesting that Roger Bart and um, the young man, you know, I, by the way, I'm going to be very bad at names here because they don't give you playbills in London. So um, you have to buy them. And I never even think about it. Um, so the young man who's playing the part, there's a moment in the second act when that happens, but, but it's so subtle because they only crack smiles and it's like they, they come right back in, they pull it back and but there are smiles that indicate oh we just thought that was really funny boy that's um and the audience catches it it's enough for the audience to catch but nevertheless it's the most subtle it's the uh, shortest and uh, the least obvious one i've ever seen but enough for the audience to catch on so um i'm I'm giving credit and discredit at the same time as a result of that. So, um, but it really uh, was quite um, fascinating to see that uh, happen. Um, you know, it's, it's really interesting that, you know, I wonder if it could be that this show could be set now. Um, that's my real question. Could it be set now? Because I, I is it is a little strange for an audience to um, be dealing with 1985 and 1955. Would they enjoy uh, 2022 and uh, whatever 30 years uh, earlier um, was that 1992. Um, I just wondered about that. I, I don't think it's uh, necessarily a problem, but I did wonder about that. But this is when you come right down to it, the newest member of that now almost venerable genre, the high school musical, because we're dealing with kids in um, school. What is clever is that um, there's a lot of reference to time. It's only a matter of time. You know, time will tell that type of thing. So that's that's um, good that the lyricist really paid attention to uh, the fact that time is um, of the essence here. Um, there's a new plot twist, and that is that Jennifer Marty's devoted girlfriend says she has connections with a record, ex- record executive and can get him a much higher profile audition than the one that he was just shut down with. So um, so once you go back to 1955, that's another more motivation for him to um, get back to uh, 55. It was funny, you know, uh, there was a lot of talk about the car being a DeLorean. Mm-hmm. Uh, this was DeLorean, huh? Um, because the, if any of the audience wasn't around or aware of this futuristic looking vehicle that was manufactured from 1981 to 1983, and that was it. Only two years. Um, 
Uh, I mean, nobody in the musical uh, uh, is it indicated, even in the film, where um, he got the car, but we can easily imagine that he bought it secondhand uh, for a song. Um, and having him wobble a song about a song about the um, about the car would have been a showstopper, maybe in the worst sense of the word, but it could have been a funny patter song, but that's not there. By the way, the license plate in the car is out of time, O-U-T-A, time. So um, now, you know, it's, it, this is the second reference I'm going to make to this event, but when Doc ruminates on where people might opt to time travel, he mentions July 4th, 1776. Yeah, okay, that makes sense, yeah. But then he mentions November 22nd, 1963, wow. the Kennedy assassination. I don't, there are so many dates you could talk about that people want to go back to. And I understand that a lot of people would like to um, know what really happened in the Kennedy assassination, which I'm told there are 40,000 books written on this subject. <laughs> I've yeah, got a couple so, of them. Yeah, I'm told yeah, I, I, maybe that figure is wrong, but I have heard that that's actually the figure. But I mean, there were so many pleasant dates that you could go back to. Um, why mention the Kennedy assassination if you think you want to know what happens? Um, I mean, you know, uh, this is uh, a musical that, like Tina Denmark, was born to entertain. So why, you know, mention that? So um, there's a new complication with Doc getting plutonium all over himself and Marty has to go for the cure. Um, so um, that's part of it as well. Um, and I'm told that the um, that whole terrorist plot is gone from the yeah. movie. Is that right? Yeah. yeah. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So um, uh, a, a change that's very interesting to me, and that is um, it was one of the most delightful bits in the movie when uh, in 1955, Doc says, who's president in 1985? And Marty says, Ronald Reagan. And um, Doc <laughs> screams, the actor who's secretary of the Treasury, Jack Benny. You know, <laughs> and of course, Jack Benny, um, despite having a long career in radio and TV, is a name that uh, may not mean very much, especially in England, frankly. Uh, it was a good joke then because the audience remembered the famous miser, and that's why secretary of the Treasury um, was chosen. Um, but here's a guy whose last movie was in 1942. I mean, of any significance, of any significance. I mean, he made cameos. He's even in the movie A Gypsy. Um, but uh, so now Doc says um, Pepe Le Pew, um, a cartoon character. So um, anyway, um, well, at the end of the first act, <clears throat> um, a scrim comes down saying to be continued. And ironically, that was the um, end of the Back to the Future movie saying to be continued, which indeed it was for two sequels. So um, so um, it, it'll, it'll probably be continued on Broadway, but. There is a difference, too, in the ending where um, I remember seeing the movie and being so, so discouraged during the picture saying, OK, but what difference does it make? Because when he gets back home, he's going to have that geeky father and that clueless mother. And it's just going to be so sad that things are going to go back to normal. And that's not what happens at all. And I, I was just exhilarated that um, things had changed. <clears throat> they changed here, too, but in a different way. Now, George McFly is a celebrated author and Biff, his nemesis in high school, um, is the person who carries in the books. Um, so that's the um, difference there um, with the ending. Um, I guess I'm giving too much away. Um, but um, for those who are looking forward to seeing it um, at the Winter Garden, where I'm told it's going to be. But um, very interesting to me, too, saying uh, George McFly talking about his book says uh, Holly Hollywood has already bought the rights, but they'll probably screw it up. 
I think there will be people feel that the musical of Back to the Future um, got screwed up too. But, but you know, I mean, despite the um, problems with the rhymes, um, I'm very grateful that the um, that the um, lyricist knew enough to uh, do a lot of time metaphors and that the uh, music does sound right for each era. So um, that may not sound like rocket science, but still, um, I know there are people who just wouldn't even acknowledge that. So I'm really um, very glad that that happened. Oh, yes. And the car does fly over the audience. Did the car, car fly over the audience in Chitty Chitty Bang Bang? Yes. I think they're using the exact same machine. <laughs> um, I think they must have bought it. Um, and um, uh, please, now that you're not using it, can we have it? Because <clears throat> it seemed to me it flowed exactly the same length and exactly the same position, the exact same mm-hmm. height. Um, so, so I think that's what happened there. Um, and um, well, anyway, there you have it. That's back to the future. Peter, there's, I, I think that there's a long, been long discussions about the musicals that do well in London versus musicals that do well in New York and in the United States. And obviously there's crossover where some shows do well in both, but there are other shows that maybe originate in New York and have mixed reviews and short runs and go over to London and run for years and win a bunch of rewards and then vice versa. This is one that has been a huge hit in London and plenty of New York people have gone over and see it. And obviously it is planning to move over. But do you think that this is a show that will translate well from more of the kitschy, um, uh, you know, goofy <laughs> stuff that tends to do well in London. Do you think it'll translate in New York where movie to musical adaptations are really hit or miss and often more miss than hit? Well, you certainly bring up a good point because I'm told the pretty woman is the big hit over there now. Mm-hmm. And of course it wasn't a, a big hit here by any stretch of any imagination. Uh, I see no reason why back to the future won't be wildly successful here. Um, I think it's going to bring a lot of pleasure to a lot of people. Um, but for those of us who are purists about musical theater, um, we are going to have a um, um, hundred million uh, objections to it, but, um, but still, but still, um, I do think uh, that the snazziness of the production and uh, it still has the heart of the movie, which is really quite wonderful. Mm-hmm. And um, um, so we always want um, musicals to improve properties if indeed they're going to be adapted. Um, and yes and no with this one. As, as I say, there are some clever ideas in it with the power of love the use there and uh, the, the, the added complications and... Uh, but um, and it was well performed. The people were very good in it, whoever they may be. Um, I mean, I, all I know is Roger Bart for obvious reasons. But um, uh, and uh, that's uh, he, he makes a lot of funny sounds that the audience really likes, too. And um, that's a skill. And he has it. So among many. So. Um, so anyway, good luck to him. Yeah, he he apparently has it has been reported in different outlets that he is probably going to be the only person transferring with the show, um, mainly because of sure. equity and visa rules and all of those things. So uh, I guess we will see his take on uh, Doc Brown here sooner rather than later. And I have, as I often do, I try to avoid music from shows that I am am not seeing uh, for a while. But I do remember when the show first started. I think even maybe it was even pre pandemic um, when they did the. Uh, the press, uh, the press day where they invited people in into the rehearsal room. I don't even remember what it was, but one of the 
silliest rhymes I ever heard is they found a way to rhyme flux capacitor with something. Um, and, that, and that's all I remember. I don't even remember what the rhyme is, but I remember getting a lot of, a lot of humor to see Roger Bart uh, rhyme that word with anything. So looking forward to that coming over. But um, we'll get into the rest of, of some of your London stuff here sure. in, a, in a second here, Peter. Sure. But Michael, um, yeah. despite the fact that you have been rehearsing for multiple shows, you did get a chance to check out a show at 54. So maybe you're doing a little advanced scouting for your Bernstein concert. Um, and you saw a, uh, a Sinatra-based show there earlier this week. Yes, it was just last night. Uh, Scott Siegel did the latest edition of his uh, continuing salutes to Frank Sinatra uh, twice a month, I believe. And uh, it's uh, now he's calling the uh, Sinatra the second century, which certainly applies. And he had a great group. Um, he often has, uh, usually has, men and women in the show. Uh, but this one, it just sort of worked out that it was all men. Uh, and it was a really great cast. John Easterlin, that wonderful opera singer who also appeared on Broadway as the opera singer in uh, Phantom of the Opera, sang time after time to open the show. And then later on, he sang So In Love, Unplugged. And his voice is so huge and gorgeous that it really filled that theater, even though, as I've said before, I don't I don't I don't think that theater was designed for people to perform without mics. But um, so that's really especially impressive. Uh, ben Jones, um, who is going to be in my Bernstein on Broadway show on September 27th, did a beautiful, very ruminative, introspective uh, version of In the Wee Small Hours. And then um Later on, a what I would describe as a gospel-flavored version rendition of You'll Never Walk Alone. And the audience just mm. went mm. crazy when he did that. Mm. Um, Michael Winther sang That's uh. Life and did it as a, a sing-along with the audience. So that got everybody <laughs> really going towards the end of the show. Uh, the last number, in fact. And um, Luke Hawkins was there uh he uh we all got to know him first as a dancer but lately he's been singing more and so he sang and danced love and marriage which many people know is the theme song for married with children on TV. <laughs> but but others of us who are older knew long before that um uh, and by the way that the little trivia on that is i'm sure many people who know it from yeah. married with children don't know is that it's from a tv musical mm -hmm. version Mm -hmm. of uh, Our Town, mm -hmm. uh, in which uh, Sinatra played the stage manager mm -hmm. and the and George and Emily were played by Paul Newman and Eva Marie Saint, right? Mm -hmm. So uh, I've never seen that. I haven't oh, no? checked. No, I, I guess it's probably still available in some way or another. I, I wouldn't be surprised if it's on YouTube. Yeah, I really should look at that. Yeah. Um, and then... Uh, Luke danced uh, without singing. You make me feel so young. Uh, um, there were two young people in the show, Jared Goodwin and Steve Martella. Scott finds these uh, young talents and showcases them in shows like uh, Broadway's Rising Stars um, that he has done in, at, at Town Hall and, and, and elsewhere. And they both really held their own with the with the uh, more seasoned performers and um, one fellow who was in this, who I didn't know, but I imagine Peter might know is Pete Caldera. 
the bio on him is he sings standards mainly at New York's Carnegie Club. Uh, he performs there monthly and is the primary sub for the long-running Sinatra Saturday show with the 11-piece Stan Rubin oh, Orchestra. Man. But away from the stage, Pete writes for the Bergen Record and the USA Today Network covering the Yankees. <laughs> How funny. <laughs> and so he, uh, I don't think he bills himself as a Sinatra impersonator, but he sounds very, very uh-huh. very much like him and he uh just wowed the crowd with wrap your troubles and dreams and then i've got you under my skin that amazing oh, nelson riddle, riddle arrangement oh, one of yeah. the all-time greats absolutely uh adapted for a uh, piano only by ron abel the fantastic uh-huh. musical director uh-huh. uh so it was really a great night and i was glad i was there and as i say it's twice a month uh and i don't think they're planning on stopping <laughs> uh so Check that out. Uh, go to the 54 website, 54below.com, and check their upcoming schedule. By the way, it's so funny that you should mention uh, one certain song uh, because it, it came to mind this week. I may have heard it uh, in the airport or something like that, but I thought if I had a child and that child wanted to be a performer, I'm talking about a kid maybe five, six, seven years old. And he had to audition for shows. I would definitely have him sing. You make me feel so young. I think it would be hilarious to have a young kid <laughs> sing that song in an audition. Uh, <laughs> so if you have a young kid and you want that kid to be a performer and the kid wants to be a performer, too, much more importantly, consider you make me feel so young as an audition song. Very good. And I did look it up. The uh, Frank Sinatra Our Town is available on YouTube. I will put a link in the show notes if anybody wants to check that out. All right, Peter, let's take a trip back across the pond. In addition to you mentioned, I think, a, a Dr. Faustus and a uh, the, the Back to the Future musical. But uh, beyond that, or unless you want to talk about Dr. Faustus, uh, what were the things you saw uh, while you were in jolly old England? Uh, Julius Caesar at the Globe. uh, And um, this was more than just non-traditional casting. And uh, what I mean is that uh, a woman played Brutus and a woman played Cassius. The woman playing Brutus was very effective. The woman playing Cassius was way over the top and unbearable. She was unbearable in the first act and worse than the second. But but you might say, okay, non-traditional casting. It was more than that because what was done was that all the pronouns that were hims and he's turned into hers and she's. So I guess that both of them, well, I'm sorry, I shouldn't say that. I guess that um, what we're talking about is that uh, Brutus was a lesbian because uh, there he is married to Portia. I mean, there was no difference there. Mm. Um, somewhat modern dress. Um, they were in uh, battle fatigues, um, uh, that camouflage type stuff. That, um, um, But uh, it, it was surprising to see uh, the pronouns changed. Um, we, I don't think we've ever had that quite before where it hasn't just yeah. been non-traditional casting, but actually um, it's acknowledged that the sex is actually what it seems to be. So, uh, so I was surprised with that. Moved well. Glad I was there. Um, glad I had seats under the uh, parapet because indeed it rained uh, quite a bit during the show. So, uh, but um, but a very effective production. It's, it's in rep. It's going to be there a while. So if you're uh, in London, I do recommend seeing it with that, allowing you to know that um, you will see an uh, unconventional production. I saw Bad Jews at the Arts Theater, and 
Wow, years ago, one of my favorite performers, uh, Tracy Chimo, played the part of this terribly difficult woman who drives everybody crazy. She's the cousin um, of a more prosperous family. She's a poor relation, and she never lets you forget it. And um, the grandfather, their grandfather has died, and she wants something that the grandfather left one of the boys, and uh, she's very upset about that. But boy, she is just impossible to deal with. And it, it's, it's anybody who takes on this role uh, really has a very difficult assignment because she just does not stop um, for close to two hours intermissionless, barking, cajoling, uh, drilling her points one by one over and over again and finding ways to worm her way into situations that she has no business doing and insulting people very skillfully the type of insult where you're not being sure if you're insulted especially when one of the boys brings home his uh, fiance and she doesn't like her because she's a gentile and, and this woman is quite uh, very much into judaism uh, so uh, for example the uh, fiance has a tattoo on her leg and she um, the cousin may makes the point that no, 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 um, Jews do not believe in this. And um, so this is a strike against her. Anyway, that's Tracy Chimo, who, by the way, when she was here in New York, she's now in Hollywood. When she was here in New York, used to play bitches so amazingly. And she's one of the sweetest people in the history of mankind. I mean, so she really lets it all out on stage. But for those who have ever seen her, in that, and um, I think it was called the Bachelorette Party, something like that, at um, the WP Theater up on. Yeah. Uh, Might Broadway. have just been Bachelorette, I think, is what it was. It's a. That's what uh, it was, yeah. Lin Leslie um, Highland, I think, or Headland. I don't remember. And yeah. I'm not even sure that's the show I'm t uh, talking yeah. about. But it, it, there was a show of which there was a, a bachelorette party. And she was really a super bitch in that one, too. But again, this has nothing to do with her personality. Nothing. I want everybody to know that because uh, she's really quite lovely. Anyway, Rosie Yadid has the part in London. She's every bit Tracy's equal. And this is a really powerful play. Um, so I recommend it highly. It's at the Arts Theater, which is a very small theater. And... Um, it's it's essentially a North Broadway theater, even though it's uh, right there in the theaters. It's sort of like our um, uh, New World stages. So, all right. I also saw Walking with Ghosts in a pre-Broadway tryout. Now, um, <laughs> Josh Ellis and I did a show at the York about uh, pre-Broadway tryouts, which we called in Philly, Boston, and Baltimore, because I was... Um, uh, a Boston native and he was a Philadelphia native and I married a woman from Baltimore and he used to go to Baltimore to see shows. So, uh, yes. So I have seen lovely ladies, kind gentlemen try out in Philadelphia. I've seen Holly go lightly later called breakfast at Tiffany's in Boston and no, no, Nanette in Baltimore, not to mention lovers and other strangers in Detroit, Ari in Washington, DC, buddy in San Francisco, kiss of the spider woman in purchase, New York and paper moon in Milburn, New Jersey. But this is my first pre-Broadway tryout in London. So uh, this is a new um, uh, achievement for me. And I put quotation marks around achievement, uh, but nevertheless, this is Gabriel Burns, one person show. He's very engaging, tremendously so. Talking about his life, um, when he starts talking about his background, you think there is no way that this person could possibly get into show business, let alone succeed. There seems to be eight strikes against him. Um, so it's very, very powerful to see him ease into um, the way he got into the business, um, very matter-of-factly, but one thing led to another. But he also talks about um, more serious subjects. I'm not going to say 
quite what. But there is one point when he sits at the lip of the stage and he um, gets very confidential with us. I don't know if that was his idea. Uh, the director Lonnie Price's idea, but whosever idea it was, it was very effective that in the most poignant moment in the show, he's not standing anymore. He sits at the lips of the stage and really gets very confidential with us. Also, what I admire is that when the lights come up, he's often running. He will not wait for entrance applause. He knows that if he's good, he'll get applause at the end. He can wait, but he doesn't need it at the beginning. And again, that may have been his idea. That might have been Lonnie Price's idea. I don't know. But whosever idea it was, it was a very effective one. So uh, we'll soon see this at the music box. It's funny. I mean, this is really almost um, like the typical pre-Broadway tryout in the sense that it's only in London for two weeks. Two weeks. I mean, the way that so many shows used to play uh, tryouts for two weeks and then come to town. So that's what they're doing. And um Again, a lot of people just don't like one-person shows, and I understand that point of view. Um, it's going to be in a nice house for a one-person show, the music box. Um, but again, if if the other type of person wants to get to know an actor um, better than you did when you walked in, uh, this is the show that really delivers the goods. So I think that uh, you'll be very pleased with that. I also saw The Seagull, directed by Jamie Lloyd. Um, Jamie Lloyd is the one who directed that Cyrano de Bergerac that was at BAM. Um, mm -hmm. earlier in the year. Um, this is the one for which my um, girlfriend, Linda, famously walked out after 12 minutes. Uh, she just couldn't stand it. There were It wasn't uh, traditional staging. Uh, it was people sitting in chairs, moving chairs, um, all that kind of business. And um, the irony was we didn't know that he was the director of The Seagull when we bought tickets and we got there and the curtain is up and there are chairs on the stage. And Linda said, oh my God, this can't be by the same director who, who did Cyrano. Um, and I checked and I said, yeah, it is. And yet, I don't know if it was a case that because she knew what she was getting into, that she was mesmerized by it. But I really thought at the end act one, I was saying, um, I'm thinking, well, where can we meet later? Um, because she's going to walk out. Because F. Scott Fitzgerald famously said, there are no second acts in American lives. There are many times when there are no second acts in Linda's life. So, um, so I really thought she was going to. However, however. No, um, she was mesmerized by it. And I just wonder if indeed she saw Seagull first and Cyrano second, if she would have walked out of Seagull and stayed with Cyrano. Maybe she just had to get uh, used to the convention. I will say that if you don't know the play, you'll be terribly confused by it. I, I, I don't think this type of staging helps to make things clear. I that thought, said, yeah, go I ahead. Thought the, I, no, no, no. I would say I thought the same thing when I saw Elevator Repair Services Seagull uh i guess a month or two ago i i oh, thought yeah, yeah. i'd seen them i'd only seen the movie so i at least know the story but i didn't think if you didn't know the plot that you'd be able to follow it either so i think that's probably very similar with a lot of these modern takes on you know that show maybe even in particular that they kind of dispense with all of the formality of what the what the you know the original uh checkoff is and just kind of dive into their own takes because i don't think i could have followed it without having seen a film version well, dispense is a good word to talk about the next facet of this production, and that is the fact that they dispensed with much of the first scene. Um, those who know the play will know that uh, Constantine has written a very avant-garde play. His mother is a very conventional, uh, acclaimed actress, but uh, very conventional. And um, and she mocks the play as it's happening. And um, and he says, all right, stop, stop. We're not going to go on. And uh, that's what happened. Well, here, 
the action starts with stop, stop. We're not going to go on. We don't see the play. We don't see the um, the characters uh, before and we don't get to meet them. So it really um, is um, they hit the ground running. So again, um, that makes it a little harder for the audience to pick up what's going on. Um, and I also saw The Life of Pi, which is supposedly coming here as well. Uh, this is based on a book and a famous movie um, in which uh, a, a, a young man is at sea with his family and uh, there's a disaster and he winds up in a lifeboat uh, with some animals and um, he has to really learn how to uh, deal with those animals needless to say he's on the boat for 227 days and there is a question at the end of the show if this ever happened at all but um, the one difference between the movie and the stage play I will admit I haven't seen the entire movie um, I had planned to before I, I went to England because I did feel I was going to see it, but time just caught up with me. And I, I saw about an hour of it, so I'm not sure um, how this played out. But the difference between what I saw in the movie and what I saw on stage was the fact that he is being interviewed after the fact um, by a, a, a reporter, I think, in the mm -hmm. uh, movie. But on the stage play, um, it's somebody who's really um, trying to get at the bottom of this. And while the reporter in the movie seems to be a nice guy who really has great sympathy, um, he, the, the guy in the stage play is uh, very aggressive. And um, it's a case of, uh, I don't believe your story. Uh, you're guilty till proved innocent. Uh, I just can't believe that uh, this happened, that you're on a boat for 227 days with a tiger and you somehow managed to survive. And which, of course, um, is a good question, I'll grant you. But um, but there does seem to be that difference there. And again, for all I know, in the last half of the movie, um, the reporter um, will turn on him and, and really uh, lash out. I don't know. Um, the young man who played the part, it's not it's not so much a brilliant performance, but my, what a workout this guy has. It's a very physical performance because, of course, he has to deal with um, these animals um, that are manipulated the way that uh, Milky White is in Into the Woods, that type of thing. A lot of guys, a lot of guys playing um, zebras and um, other animals as well. So, uh, gorilla. Um, so, it, there's, it's a big cast, you know, even though it's, it's essentially a two-character play, but it's a big cast because of those animals. And, uh, it's very effective at the end of the first act. That's when the tiger shows up on the boat. Um, and whoa, you know, I mean, that's that's really a good cliffhanger. So I think that's very good. But um, this guy really is uh, tossed and churned and people pick him up and they throw him around. And, you know, they're replicating the fact that uh, he's on the sea and um, how difficult that is. And uh, so it's really an endurance test for this guy. And I, I really pity him on matinee days where he has to do it twice. But um, so it's it's more of uh, you, you applaud at the end for what he's been through rather than what he's performed uh and that is not a criticism that's an observation there's a difference and um but uh i i, I was very glad i went and i'll look forward to seeing it on broadway if indeed that does turn out to be true yeah that's I, i've saw, i've seen life of pi the movie and i don't remember how that character of the reporter turns out um but that is an interesting shift if that does in fact uh take place but that actually brought up something that i was going to ask earlier when you were talking about back to the future and when you are going to see shows that are based on some sort of pre-existing property whether it's a movie or 
I, I guess, books to a lesser degree just because those are more time uh, intensive to prepare for. But do you often try to watch them or read them or do something before you see it? Or do you try to go in more cold or does it ha- depend on the individual show that you're seeing or what's your general philosophy on that? I absolutely always do the homework because I enjoy it that much more. And I think it's one of the reasons why I like the To Kill a Mockingbird play so much, because, yes, I had read the book. Yes, um, I had seen the movie and I do it right beforehand. I mean, the almost famous movie has lived in this apartment for months now, but I'm not watching it until the day I see the show. But I love doing that to see what they've done uh, and um, how they handle it. And I think that's really why I liked To Kill a Mockingbird more than most people, because having seen what Aaron Sorkin, obviously he read the book and obviously he saw the movie and he saw what wasn't there. And that's what he filled in. And I thought that was extraordinary. So, yeah, that's part of the joy of it. Um, I, I even do it when, when there's nothing at stake. I mean, for example, on this trip, I took with me a novel called How Much by a guy named Bert Blackman. Yeah, I haven't heard of it either, really. Why do I have it? Because Lillian Hellman adapted it into a play in 1963 called My Mother, My Father and Me. And um, and that's why I wanted to uh, on the plane going over and coming back. I wanted to read the novel and read the play and see what she did with it. I think it's great fun to do that. Um, so uh, yes, I always um, love doing that. So um, the day I go to see Almost Famous, do not bother me during the day. I'll be watching the movie. <laughs> Duly noted. Is it the same? Like, do you feel differently? And obviously you often see things before, you know, if it's a new show, cast albums are out. But if it is a show that has lived somewhere else, whether in London or somewhere else, and there's a cast album available, I believe by the time it opens on Broadway, Almost Famous cast album might be out. They've already started releasing singles from it. Do you listen to that as well to be prepared? Or do you go in wanting to be surprised by the musical choices of that? No, uh, when I when I was a kid, um, I enjoyed both experiences: going in cold and um, and going in knowing word for word. Um, the uh, cast album of "The Row of the Grease Paint," "The Smell of the Crowd," came out before the show landed on Broadway, and I knew it inside out by the time I went to the Boston tryout. Um, and there's a song in it called "On a Wonderful Day Like Today," and what's not on the album was Anthony Newley singing "On a Miserable Day Like Today." When the sun is as cold as an elephant's nose, one half of me's freezing, the other half's froze on a miserable day like today. Now, believe me, if I had gone into that show without knowing the album, I would not be able to quote those lyrics the way I just did. But I had known the album so well that I said, whoa, whoa, this isn't on the album. Okay. sometimes I do like to have the experience of going in cold. So um, but my my most endearing story about this was chorus line the album came out on uh july 26 1975 and uh because of course this was the acclaimed show i immediately got it and this is the day of records where we had two sides to a record and i uh played the uh, first side and boy it was so good that i played it again and it was so good that i played it again now i had tickets for august 9th only you know not that many days away a couple of weeks away and I thought, you know, what I'm going to do is simply listen to the first side and uh, and then I'll let the rest of it be new to me. 
And I am telling you that night at the Schubert Theater, when that first side of the record was uh, performed and finished, there was a part of me that wanted to jump up and say, wait, 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 I got to go home and listen to the rest of it. You know, so, but uh, <laughs> they wouldn't stop for me. So I had to uh, get the rest of it cold. So it was fascinating to hear um, Dance 10 Looks 3 and uh, the, what I did for Love and One. Those were brand new to me while everything wow. else. Of course, I didn't know everything in Hello 12, Hello 13, Hello Love, because it was tremendously abridged on the recording in a phenomenal editing job. I mean, it's just amazing to me. It, uh, people, if you have turntables and you um, and you never got the original cast album of a chorus line on vinyl, I'm telling you, it's quite an experience to hear that Hello 12, Hello 13, Hello Love, but you will swear that that's the entire song. It's so brilliantly edited. Um, and uh, I, I really recommend that. I, I think it's great fun to see um, what it was a bridge to because uh, it, it, it's what a job that is to do and make it sound cogent. And um, and they did. And they did. So, uh, so yes, uh, a little of both. I have a turntable. I believe I have what is that same chorus line album. So maybe this afternoon I'll put on uh, that track and listen to that. So that's. Do you be, also uh, have the CD? Um, I don't know if I have a physical CD, but I'm sure I can get okay, the, right. whatever. Is that's streaming. fine. Yeah, yeah, that's fine. But there, there are profound differences. It's, it's much edited. Yeah. Um, so, uh, so you will see differences. But it's amazing how wonderful the the original sounds. Wonderful, Michael. We've talked uh, in the past couple of weeks about the new memoir by Mary Rogers called Shy, and and you had something that, as you're reading through it, really stuck out and you wanted to uh, wanted to mention this week. Yeah, there are so many fascinating bits of info in it, but uh, she's writing about the Tony Awards, when uh, the famous Tony Awards of 1960, when Gypsy was up uh, against The Sound of Music. And I guess I didn't actually put it together in my head that also up that season was once upon a mattress mm -hmm. <laughs> because nobody even mentions that because uh, the, the competition between gypsy and and sound and music was so great so anyway she was there uh at the ceremony um and there's a footnote by jesse green the ceremony honoring the season that had begun in may of 1959 was held on sunday april 24th 1960 we tend to forget or not be aware how early um the ceremony was in those days and it was broadcast locally on cbs with eddie albert hosting but um mary writes the 1960 tony awards were given out in the grand ballroom uh, grand ballroom of the old astor hotel in times square not in a real theater as they are today we sat at round tables jammed together and though an orchestra played snippets of broadway tunes as winners snaked their way to the dais there were no performances from the season's shows no medleys or in memoriams no close-ups of nominees chewing their nails the ceremony wasn't a broadway marketing extravaganza but an industry function a dressier but duller version of an undertaker's <laughs> dinner <laughs> Most of the acceptances were just quick thank yous, 15 seconds at most. The whole thing took an hour. Can you imagine? Um, this may very well be on YouTube, too. And by the way, in a year, I think we, so, yeah. when uh, when you have Gypsy and when you have Take Me Along and when you have Once Upon a Mattress and Fiorello and Sound of Music, the latter two won. What opened the show? What number opened the show? The Star Spangled Banner. Seriously. <laughs> Tribute to Bernstein and the uh, On the Town opening as well. Clearly, that's what that was. 
Anyway, going on, uh, the uh, I guess it was so relatively uh, less uh, considered so much less important uh, in those days than, than it is now. Uh, she says she goes on to write that uh, after Celeste Home announced the Sound of Music as the uh, the other winner because it tied with Fiorello for best musical. None of the producers or songwriters or producer songwriters were there to pick up the prize for the sound of music. Uh, she writes, Daddy and Mummy were in Italy vacationing. Aki, that's Oscar Hammerstein, was in Bucks County dying. The co-producers, Leland Hayward, uh, who was who was he was who knows where. And Dick Halliday, Mary Martin's long fingered husband, was supposedly in Brazil. So three of us kids Aki's son, Jimmy, Mary's son, Larry Hagman, and I went to the dais to accept the award, along with the book writers, Howard Lindsay and Russell Krauss. Um, so that's a little wow. interesting info about, <laughs> about what happened at the 1960 Tony Awards, which, as Peter says, I think he's right. I think that is on YouTube. Uh, so you might want to check that out. Uh, on another note, um, Mary Rogers, I, I did get to interview her in 2014. And uh, that was kind of interesting because she had already famously made her remark when she had been asked about uh, to comment on Arthur <laughs> Lawrence, uh, call me when he's dead. And so I asked her about it because this was a not long after that. And she uh, she wasn't terribly forthcoming, but she did say a bit more. She's what she said to me was, Arthur was not somebody who wore well. As he got older, he became bitter and jealous and difficult to everybody to get along with. I think he was bitter because he thought he should have been acclaimed as a talent equal to Steve and Lenny, but he simply wasn't. And then uh, when I suggested that perhaps Lawrence maybe moved into directing, including revivals of West Side Story and Gypsy, uh, because he became less successful and productive as a writer in his later years, she replied, most people don't think of him as a director. Uh, so that's that was that uh, on that occasion. Uh, I, I sent a link to that interview that I did with Mary in 2014 mm -hmm. that we conclu included in the show notes. So, Michael, um, I have a feeling I know which direction you're going to go with some of these musical moments, but why don't you let us know what they are for today's episode? Well, yes, our opener is shy uh, from <laughs> Once Upon a Mattress, which is um, also the title of Mary Rogers' memoir. She said she had considered several other titles, one of which was Where Was I?, which I think would have been clever, too. Uh, but Shy uh, is just fine. And that's a great song from Once Upon a Mattress, especially as performed by Carol Burnett and company. And the closer is um, the one well-known collaboration of Mary Rogers and Stephen Sondheim from the Mad Show, the song The Boy From, uh, with music by Mary Rogers and lyrics by Stephen Sondheim, uh, a, a hilarious parody of a song called The Girl from Ipanema, which also in, in my interview with Mary, I said to her, uh, I said, it seems to me that the parody has outlived the original song. <laughs> and she said, well, you know, that's Sondheim for you. That was her response. <laughs> the lyrics are really brilliant. And the, and the way the, the melody and the, and the harmonies sort of ape the girl from mm -hmm. Ipanema mm -hmm. without copying it. 
uh, is also really beautifully done. And the performance is a, a spectacular one by Linda Lavin. So that is our closer. Wonderful. All right, Peter, let's let's talk trivia. Do you want to start by giving us the answer to last week's question? Sure. Uh, why not? Uh, sounds like a good idea. Uh, what do these musicals have in common? The Baker's Wife, Cabaret, Irma La Deuce, Milk and Honey, South Pacific, and the 1968 production of Hair, and not the original off-Broadway one. Okay. My answer was each of these titles of their opening numbers is in a foreign language. The Baker's Wife, Chanson. Cabaret, Willkommen. Irma La Deuce, Vals Milieur. Milk and Honey, Shalom, South Pacific, Dite Moi, and the 1968 production of Hair, Aquarius. Hey, come on. It's a Latin word. It's a foreign language. You know, so, uh, and that was, ironically enough, I think the 16th song when the show was done off Broadway, when it started the public theater, as the first production of the public theater, by the way, in 1967, Aquarius was not the opening number. So that's why I did that. Well, I have to admit that um, Tony Janicki and Josh Israel, the first two to answer, um, knew that indeed we were talking about foreign language uh, titles, but uh, they had different takes on them. Um, one mentioned um, Hare Krishna and the other one mentioned another. <laughs> um, I don't remember what, but the point is they said, oh, well, they all have foreign titles. Um, and uh, But those songs that they mentioned were not in the 68 um, production of here. They were only in the off-Broadway one. Uh, they came later. So, uh, but we'll still give them credit, as we will give Brigadood and Isaac Blevins uh, credit, who did know that what I was getting at was the opening numbers. Okay. This week, in her first starring role in a hit musical, she simply said the expression, go to hell. More than 20 years later, in her last starring role in a hit musical, one that ran virtually as long, she angrily sang Go to Hell, along with her famous co-star. The irony is that in one of her most famous roles, she would have never said Go to Hell. Who is she? What were the musicals? What were the circumstances that caused her to use the expression, saying it? in the first musical and singing it in the second. All right. I have a feeling that people will uh, have lots of good guesses on that, far more than I could ever muster to come up with. So I'm always impressed by everybody's knowledge and so or research ability. But um, before we get out of here, I do want to mention that as we have talked about uh, both on last week's This Week on Broadway and throughout the week on Today on Broadway, uh, our Patreon listeners were able to enter a giveaway for a signed libretto for the Pulitzer Prize and Tony-winning musical A Strange Loop, signed by the show's creator Michael R. Jackson. And I was informed by the esteemed James Marino this morning that the winner of the giveaway is Andrea Wister. So congratulations to Andrea. Um, we will be shipping off that uh, signed libretto to her very shortly. Uh, that was a huge success, Peter. There are tons of people wanted that. So maybe we will have to start doing more giveaways like that in the future for Patreon members. <laughs> if uh, if you are not a Patreon member, you can obviously go to patreon.com slash broadwayradio or broadwayradio.com slash Patreon. Tall and slender, 
All right, unless you have any final words for the good of the order, I think we can uh, we can wrap yes, we up can. for the week. Yes, we can. All right, everybody, thank you for listening to This Week on Broadway. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Broadway Radio. Uh, have a wonderful week, and we will talk to you next Sunday. Great. I'm on fire and I'm breathless Every time I inquire How are things in Takarimbala Tumba del Fuego Santa Malipa Zacatecas La Junta del Soli Cruz Why? When I speak does he vanish? Oh, why? Is he acting so clannish? Oh, I... Wish I understood Spanish When I tell him I think he's the end He giggles a lot with his friend Tall and slender, moves like a dancer But I never seem to get any answer From the boy from Tacarimba, La Tumba del Fuego Santa Malipa, Zacatecas, La Junta del Solicruz I got the blues Trousers vermilion, his trousers are vermilion. Why does he claim he's Castilian? He said he's Castilian. Why do his friends call him Lillian? And I hear at the end of the week he's leaving to start a boutique. Now I'm only pretending Cause I know today's the last I'll be spending with the boy From Takarimbo La Tumba del Fuego Santa Malipa Zacatecas La Junta del Soli Cruz Tomorrow he sails He's moving to Wales To live in Chlan Vyablochwin Gorgerichwin Tasilio, go, go, go. Oh.